Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Today we begin to look at the second century. We'll start by considering Jewish Christian movements, including the Nazarenes and the Ebionites. Next, we'll shift gears and explore the cultural pressure of asceticism and how it began infiltrating Christianity. We'll briefly survey the influence of Marcion and his followers before sketching out the various Christologies of the second century. This is kind of a hodgepodge of unrelated topics, but that overlap in the same time period, and so serves as a good introduction before we get into other topics in the second century. Here now is episode 483, part three of our early church history class, Christianity in the Second Century. Early church history number three, Christianity in the Second Century. My goal is to cover Jewish Christianity, asceticism, Marcion, the Gnostics, and Christologies in the second century. And don't worry if some of those words are strange or undefined in your mind. We will, we will get there. We will define them. Now, to the more experienced observer, you'll, you'll probably be asking, well, there's a lot of other stuff that happened in the second century. Why aren't you covering that? I'm going to cover more next time in our next session and then more in the session. I'm not, this is not just the only one on the second century, but this is just giving a, a lay of the land or at least some of the land as we get going. So I want to begin by talking about Jewish Christianity, and my way into that is to read to you this quote by Patricia Crone from the Journal of Near Eastern Studies. She writes, Originally, the bastion of law-observing Christianity was the Jerusalem church, the undisputed center of Christianity until the first Jewish war with Rome. When this war broke out, the Jerusalem Christians reportedly fled to Pella, in the Decapolis in Transjordan. And though some returned to the devastated city in 70, they were expelled again after the suppression of Bar Kokhba's revolt in 135, when Hadrian forbade Jews to reside in Jerusalem. Thereafter, Jewish Christians were concentrated in the Aleppo region in northern Syria, in the Decapolis around Pella, and in the Dead Sea region, as we know from Epiphanius and Jerome. They would seem also to have been present in the Golan, where excavators of an abandoned village have found lintels decorated with a combination of crosses, menorahs, and other mixed Jewish and Christian symbols, probably indicating that the building was a Jewish-Christian synagogue. After Epiphanius and Jerome, however, we have no certain evidence for the existence of Jewish Christians in Greek, Latin, or Syriac sources written before the rise of Islam. So this tells us about Jewish Christianity, which we talked about last time. And these are people that are ethnically Jewish, but they believe in Jesus. They're doing both. They're keeping the law of Moses, and they're also committing their lives to following Christ as well. We looked at how they weren't allowed to attend synagogues, though. Remember that, the Burkat Hamanim, the curse said against the Nazarenes, in other words, the followers of Jesus, the Nazarene. They're separated from Judaism, even though they are themselves Jews, because of believing in Jesus. 
And on the other side, Gentile Christianity over time moves and changes and eventually starts to look at Jewish Christianity as a heresy, as something that is to be rejected. And it's not hard to see how this could happen because of the geographical separation. The Jewish Christians are living in the east. To be in the Transjordan is to be on the east side of the Jordan. I mean, it's, it's really a right on the border of the Roman Empire, like where you're not even in the Roman Empire anymore, into the region of Nabatea and Parthia. So it's way out east, okay? And, but the, the ones in Syria do have some, some interaction with other Christianity. And so because of this geographic isolation, you really do have kind of a slow separation over time that happens. Now, these Jewish Christians all believed Jesus was a human being. They did not believe he was God. They did not believe he preexisted. Some of them believed in the virgin birth. Others believed that Jesus had a human father, that Joseph was the human father of Jesus. We're going to see that in a second. And they also allegedly had the Gospel of Matthew in Hebrew, which is interesting. And scholars tend to downplay that or reject that, but there's actually pretty strong evidence that they did. So do with that what you will. This belief system that Jesus is a human being, either a special human being who was righteous and therefore became a child of God through receiving the Spirit or however that works, or the idea that Jesus was supernaturally begotten like the second Adam, created like the second Adam, this belief, either way you go with it, is called dynamic monarchianism. And that's a term that I'm going to be explaining a little more as we go towards the end. But I just wanted to mention the Jewish Christians are uh, witnesses of that belief system. Now, there are two main branches of Jewish Christianity. There's the Ebionites and the Nazarenes, or sometimes they're translated Nazareans. Okay? And what I want to share with you is two major quotes, one by Epiphanius and one by Eusebius, that talk about each one of these groups. It's important to keep in mind that what we have about the Jewish Christian groups is recorded by hostile witnesses, people that didn't like them. We don't have any of their own writings that survived, or very few of their writings that survive to this day. And we have to be careful how we read. So if an enemy says, watch out for them, they are full of deception and smooth words, don't engage with them. What I want you to hear is they have well-reasoned arguments for their beliefs, and if you aren't prepared, I'm worried they'll convince you to their view. That's the, the charged, judgmental, emotional language that you get from a hostile witness who is really convinced that you're wrong and that you have nothing of value to contribute to the, the discussion. What, what's even worse is that a lot of times there isn't a discussion. The Jewish Christians are locked away in the East, and uh, the Gentile Christians are in the West, and they're not having a discussion. They're just writing the, about people that they, they've heard about. Okay, And that seems to be what's going on with Epiphanius and Eusebius. So keep that in mind, but I want to expose you to the primary sources so you see for yourself how they talk about the Jewish Christians, because it is, it is worthwhile. So this is a book called The Panarion of Epiphanius of Salamis. It's, it's a, kind of a terrible book. It just lists out all these different Christian groups that Epiphanius doesn't like, and then he explains why they're wrong. Uh, that's basically the whole book. At the same time, it's a super helpful book because a lot of the writings of people doesn't survive till today, 
And so even though it's like super biased, we get to at least see what these different groups believed to some degree, even though it's a bit exaggerated and garbled at times. All right, so this is the Panarion 29.7. It says, but they are in every respect Jews and nothing else. It's talking about the Nazarenes. Now they use not only the New Testament, but also the Old Testament, just as the Jews do. For they do not reject the legislation, the prophets, and the books called by the Jews' writings, as do those already mentioned, nor do they hold anything different, but confess everything willingly according to the teaching of the law, and as the Jews do, apart, that is, from believing Christ. For they confess the resurrection of the dead, and that everything was produced by God. These are two, two big points, resurrection of the dead, everything was produced by God. They acknowledge one God and his child, Jesus Christ. Look at that. So they have one God and his child, Jesus Christ. They are highly trained in the Hebrew language, for they read in the Hebrew all of the law, the prophets, and what are called writings, meaning as books composed in verse, as well as Kings, Chronicles, Esther, and all the rest, just as the Jews certainly do. In this alone do they differ from the Jews and the Christians, from the Jews in believing in Christ, and from the Christians in being bound still to the law, to circumcision, and the Sabbath, and the rest. But concerning Christ, I cannot say if they too, drawn to the wickedness of the sect of Serinthus and Merinthus mentioned earlier, regard him as a mere human being, or if they affirm what is true, that he was born of Mary through the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's not sure about that. He goes on in 29.9, They are in every respect enemies of the Jews, for not only do the children of the Jews hate them, but rising in the morning, at midday, and in the evening, three times a day, when they offer prayers in the synagogues, they curse and anathematize them. Three times a day, saying, God curse the Nazareans. That's the Burkat Hamanim we saw earlier. The reason is that they especially resent them because, although they are of Jewish stock, they preach that Jesus is the Messiah, which is in opposition to those who are still Jews and who do not accept Jesus. They have the complete Gospel of Matthew in Hebrew, for there is no doubt that it is still preserved by them in Hebrew writing, just as it was originally written. So Epiphanius, writing in the year 375, give or take, is saying, this is what I know about the Jewish Christians. And he also talks about the regions where they lived. I, I skipped that part. He says a lot more than this. Believe it or not, this is just an abbreviated quote uh, from him on this. And uh, you can read more about it if you want, if you want to get his book and check out um, sections 29.7 as well as 29.9. So that's a little bit about the Nazarenes. Sounds like an interesting group of Christians. You know, from where I stand there, I wouldn't recognize them as heretics. I, I would have some disagreements with them probably on covenant theology, but I wouldn't say, you know, they're heretics or anything like that. Then we have the Ebionites, and this is a quote from Eusebius of Caesarea in his book, Ecclesiastical History. Uh, he writes, this is uh, book 3, chapter 27. He writes, the ancients quite properly called these men Ebionites. This is another name for Jewish Christians, because they held poor and mean opinions concerning Christ. That wasn't very nice, Eusebius. For they considered him a plain and common man who was justified only because of his superior virtue 
and who was the fruit of the intercourse of a man with Mary. In their opinion, the observance of the ceremonial law was altogether necessary on the ground that they could not be saved by faith in Christ alone and by a corresponding life. There were others, however, besides them that were of the same name, but avoided the strange and absurd beliefs of the former and did not deny that the Lord was born of a virgin and of the Holy Spirit. But nevertheless, inasmuch as they also refused to acknowledge that he preexisted, being God, word, and wisdom, they turned aside into the impiety of the former, especially when they, like them, endeavored to observe strictly the bodily worship of the law. These men, moreover, thought that it was necessary to reject all the epistles of the apostle. When he says the apostle, he means Paul, whom they called an apostate from the law, and they used only the so-called gospel according to the Hebrews and made small account of the rest. The Sabbath and the rest of the discipline of the Jews they observed just like them, but at the same time like us, they celebrated the Lord's days as a memorial of the resurrection of the Savior. Wherefore, in consequence of such a course, they received the name of Ebionites. You can almost hear him spit when he says Ebionites, which signified the poverty of their understanding. For this is the name by which a poor man is called among the Hebrews. It's related to the Hebrew word for poor. Probably referring way back to the early Jerusalem church, which was full of lots of poor people, and they wore it as probably a banner of pride that they were you know, committed to their faith so much that they were, they were poor. But Eusebius takes it as intellectually poor, poor in understanding. Uh, but it, really a fascinating report, although it's a bit garbled. It's, it's a little hard to figure out what exactly are we talking about here. We, we see that Eusebius is fond of calling all Jewish Christians Ebionites. And that's not really helpful. It would be better to use different terms for different groups because some of these people believe that Jesus was the son, the biological son of Joseph, and others believe that he had a miraculous beginning in the womb of Mary. Those are two very different beliefs. One of them is going to hold to what we see in Matthew and Luke, and one's not. And one of the groups is rejecting Paul and saying, we don't like Paul, we're not going to accept Paul. And the other group is saying, no, Paul's cool with us. So it's a bit confusing to see, and he's writing about 324 A.D., so he's writing a while after this movement was really in its heyday early on, but he knows about them, and he's living in Caesarea. Caesarea is not that far away from the place of the Jewish Christians, and his teacher, his master, uh, was called uh, Pamphilus, who learned from Origen. And Origen himself studied under the Jews and, be, and uh, was able to learn Hebrew. There is connection here. It's not totally just like making stuff up. Like it, it's somewhat hearsay, but it's, it's not just whole cloth made up. Uh, so Jewish Christian groups persisted. That's all we can really say about them. I have to go on to other subjects. But uh, Jewish Christian groups persisted throughout our entire first 500 years of Christian history. But then after that, they disappear from the scene. About the time the Muslims come in, the Jewish Christians do somewhat disappear. We have some reports in the Middle Ages, but they're, they're pretty sketchy. Then you certainly do have a lot of modern Jewish Christians. Today, they're called Messianic Jews, Okay, but very similar beliefs. All right, on to our next topic. This, this is not a group. This is a belief system called asceticism, and it's important for you to know about it 
if you're going to learn church history. Because this was huge. It affected so much. In fact, to this day, the Roman Catholic Church, for example, continues to embrace some aspects of this teaching of asceticism. What is asceticism? It's from the Greek word ascesis, which means exercise or training. So asceticism is the rigorous pursuit of discipline in avoiding bodily pleasures. So I want to look at three Christian documents written in the second century that are obviously influenced by asceticism, this belief that if it feels good, don't do it, right? So like, you know, if, if, you're, if, if you're presented with a dessert, uh, you know, item like a, a cookie, for example, like we have in the back there, you should always say no, okay? And if you have to choose between sleeping on a hard, uncomfortable bed or a soft, enjoyable bed, you always pick the hard bed. And, uh, you know, in the, in the morning, you should, you should be training yourself, and at night, training yourself to face life without any comfort. The Stoics, if you've ever heard of the Stoics, they strongly believed and promoted asceticism, this belief about pleasure. So the Acts of Paul and Thecla is a document from the early to mid-2nd century. When I say 2nd century, I mean starting in the year 100, going up to the year 199. That's what I mean by the second century. So the first half of the second century is 100 to 150. So the Acts of Paul and Thecla is a historical fiction. In it, Paul preaches about virginity, and we get some pretty amazing Beatitudes. Now, of course, in the Bible, Paul did not write the Beatitudes. No, Jesus spoke the Beatitudes, right? Matthew and Luke wrote them down, but... In this book, the Acts of Paul and Thecla, Paul speaks to the Beatitudes. The first one I think you'll recognize. This is Acts of Paul and Thecla, chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's Matthew 5, 8, right? We know that one. But then look at the next one. Blessed are they who keep their flesh undefiled or pure, for they shall be the temple of God. Well, that's, that's fresh. Fresh take, right? He goes on. Blessed are the temperate, or chaste, for God will reveal himself to them. Verse 15, Blessed are they who abandon their secular enjoyments, for they shall be accepted of God. And 16, this is the clincher, Blessed are they who have wives as though they had them not, for they shall be made angels or messengers of God. So this strongly contrasts with the words of the Apostle Paul himself, who said in Colossians 2.18, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. It's kind of hysterical that it's like right here in this book, which is about 100 years or 80, 75 years after the Apostle Paul wrote, uh, depending on when it was written. And Paul also said, if you, in Colossians 2.20, if you if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Like he specifically called it out the previous century and said, look guys, this is a dead end, it's not who we are. It might help a little, but like it's not the main thing. 
he talks instead about much more of a spiritual influence, the Holy Spirit walking by the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, as the cure rather than just denying yourself all pleasure. In fact, he says in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. So it's like everything's all right there, and still these ideas are starting to come into Christianity. Why are they coming into Christianity in the second century? Because they are mainstream thoughts in the culture. In the Greco-Roman world, if you want to live the good life, if you want to pursue a lifestyle of ethics or of righteousness, their impulse, their intuition is like, you just got to deny all pleasure. That's what you got to do. That's how you do it. And that's not biblical. That's cultural. And it starts to infiltrate into Christianity already in the second century. It's pretty amazing it was that early. Uh, the proto-gospel of James, I'm not going to read it to you, but I'll just summarize. It's a gospel that tells us about how Mary was born and how she grew up. And in the gospel of James, the proto-gospel of James, Mary grows up in the temple. She's so holy in the gospel of James, so much more holy than the real Mary. Uh, she grows up in the temple, and she's so chaste and holy, and she's in there, and she's weaving the curtain the veil of the temple. And then she needed to be cared for, so they found this elderly man who would never touch her, Joseph, and, and he became her caretaker. And she, she was a virgin. It's emphatic about that. In fact, they have a midwife confirm her virginity just before she gives birth to Jesus, just so that there's no question about it. She's never been with a man. And then there's another scene after she gives birth where a midwife checks and miraculously she's still a virgin even after giving birth to a child. So like, what is this? What, I mean, it's obviously it's, a, it's a, a fictional tale about, you know, historical fiction. Like, oh, maybe this is how it happened. But like, why say it this way? Well, there's an anxiety about sexual pleasure in the Holy Family, in the, the family of, of Mary, that she would have any kind of intercourse at all would be considered unacceptable at this point, uh, at least by the Christians who were writing and reading this book. And then we have the Acts of John, which is even juicier. It features a love triangle. There's this woman named Drusiana, a Christian wife, very beautiful lady, and her husband is Andronicus. And Andronicus just loves his wife. They're a happy married couple, and she becomes a Christian, and she eventually says to him, I don't want to I don't want to sleep with you anymore. I want to be a full, fully committed Christian. And so he locks her in a tomb. Totally understandable response. As a husband, he this is what he says. You can't make this stuff up. He locks her in a tomb and he says, quote, either I'll have you as a wife as I had you before or you must die. And uh, of course she says, well, I guess I just must die then. You know, it's my convictions. And he changes his mind. He changes her mind, he takes her back, and they, they have a sexless marriage. And then there's this other guy, Callimachus, and he's like, oh, Drusiana is so attractive. I'm just so in love with her. And he sends her a message and says, Drusiana, won't you please spend some time with me? Some time with me. Callimachus is just like so excited to attempt to have 
an adulterous affair with a woman who won't even sleep with her husband. <laughs> when she gets this message, she's so freaked out. She's so horrified that her body in some way caused lust in someone else that she prays to God to, to, that she would die. And she does. She dies. And that's just the beginning of the story. It gets weird from there. What, what is going on here? There is an anxiety about sexual expression, about eating good foods, about the pleasures of life that starts to manifest within Christianity already in the second century. All right, that's all I can say about asceticism. We'll come back to it over and over and over again because it, it, it's, it's always there, not dominating in the foreground, but it's there whispering in the background when you're reading these documents. They have certain assumptions that we don't have, uh, which I think are good to know about. Let's talk about Marcion. Marcion of Sinope. Here's a guy that really made waves in early Christian history in the second century. He lived from approximately 85 to 164. I don't know if I said this before, but like every date I give you is, is subject to argument. You know, they're like, there are no firm dates when it comes to church history. They're, they're sort of like guesstimates. And usually there's a range, okay? But uh, this is this is roughly speaking when he lived. He was the son of a bishop in Pontus. He was wealthy. Marcion was a big deal. Uh, I was reading one book that was talking about how he was in the shipping business and how he, uh, he owned ships, which, you know, then as now is, is kind of a big deal to own ships that would transfer freight from uh, place to place in the Mediterranean. And he came to Rome in the year 140, and he donated 200,000 sesterces, uh, which to give you a sense of it means that uh, that's about half of what you would need to have in order to establish yourself as equestrian rank. That would be 400,000 sesterces. Uh, to be someone of decurian rank, it would be 200,000, which is what he had. So like, he's, he's, he's got enough to give away that would already make him a noble citizen in the Roman Empire of status, Okay. So he's obviously a very connected and significant person. He's very clever. And he writes a book called The Antitheses. And he fixates on differences that he perceives between the Old Testament view of God and the New Testament view of God. So after about four years, the church at Rome kicks him out and says, we don't want you around here anymore. In the summer, I think it was July of the year 144, some days we do have fairly well-known. And, and they, they cast him out and they say, here, take your money with you. They make a clean break with him. And so what he did is he took that money and he founded his own churches. Here's a guy who's really well-connected all over the Mediterranean world. He's got boats. He's smart. He's got education. And he's got a pile of money. So he's using that to uh, start churches with this interesting belief. None of his writings survive. All we know about him is from hostile witnesses, but we can piece together some of it. He says the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament. Now, I don't think he believed the Old Testament God was evil, but he thought the Old Testament God, the creator God, the God who made the universe, was just. Very much like a, a focus on justice God uh, who believed in an eye for an eye, and that's not the God that Jesus proclaimed. The God Jesus proclaimed is the Father, a different God than the God of the Old Testament. And so that's 
and, and, and the New Testament God is good and kind and loving. And he just loves the, the God of, especially the Apostle Paul is his favorite. He's, he's an Apostle Paul fanboy, if we could call it that way. And so he's got the Apostle Paul, and uh, you know, he grew up uh, criticizing texts, which, which is standard procedure for educated people in their world, because their books were usually unreliable to some degree. There's no way to make a perfect copy by hand. So in grammar school, and Marcion is of the elite class that would have you know, teachers and be educated, the first thing you would do is establish a text. So you'd all read the text and, and make sure that you got all the words right, and you would correct your text. And so Marcion does that to the Bible. He takes the Gospel of Luke and he says, look at all these Jewish corruptions. And he deletes out of it all the parts that make the, the Old Testament look good. And then he does the same thing to Paul's epistles, and he's got his own, what's called a canon of the Bible. And that's a list of books in the Bible. And he's got Luke, and it's an edited version of Luke, and then Paul's epistles, edited version once again. Now, some have claimed that he was into docetism. Docetism is the belief that Jesus only appeared human. Okay, so you could, Jesus is like a hologram. You could walk with him on the beach, but if you turn back, you would only see one set of footprints. Okay, so that's the docetic Jesus. He's spirit, not flesh. This is somewhat contested. came across a recent scholar who was challenging this a little bit, saying that it wasn't really the case David Wilhite is the name of the guy. It's not really the case that he didn't believe Jesus was flesh and blood because we also know that he believed Jesus suffered and died. Okay, so if Jesus suffered and died, you can't be a hologram, I think. I don't know how you could work that out. But uh, so his theory about Marcion is that Mar Marcion believed that Jesus came down from heaven, no birth or anything like that, just came down from heaven as a spirit being that became a flesh being and then went back to being a spirit being after that. So it's kind of a U-shape move for Marcion. It's contested, so I put a question mark next to it. So this whole idea of canon, though, is something that is going to come up for us again, and that's the question of what, are, what books belong in the Bible? Now, as far as the Old Testament go, that was already settled by the, the Jews. They have they figured all that out. Okay, So when we talk about New Testament canon or early church history canon, we're talking about the New Testament primarily. We'll probably come back to this later, but Marcion said, all right, just Luke and edited Luke and edited Paul, and that's it. And uh, the rest of the church reacted against that by saying, no, we want Matthew, Mark, Luke, John as the four Gospels. We want Paul's epistles. We want the general epistles. We want Revelation, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, 1 Peter, you know, so forth. Uh, the, the books that we know. And that, that was a process that took time to make sure which books should be in the New Testament and which should not. And really, it was because Marcion developed his own canon that the rest of the church started asking, oh yeah, like we should really have a definitive list of which books are accurate and which books like Paul and Thecla or the Proto-Gospel of James are not considered to be Bible. Because Christians like today so it was back then, we just love to write books. There's just something about us. We love writing books. You have to figure out which ones are authoritative. All right, so that's a little bit about Marcion. Marcion and his followers are called Marcionites. They were a big deal, especially in the 2nd, but even more so in the 3rd century. 
and uh, there is just huge opposition to Marcion. People just hate his guts, even after he's dead, and they write books against him and his followers. Now, they lasted at least for another century after the time of Marcion into the third century in the West, and probably centuries longer in the East. So let's move on. I want to mention the Gnostics and the Valentinians. I don't have time to cover either of these groups right here and right now, but they are a big deal in the second century. And the Gnostics, I wouldn't quite call them Christians. I would say they're kind of like doing something else other than Christianity, but they're competing with Christian churches for followers, and they're taking people out of churches, especially educated, sophisticated, elite people. To be a Gnostic is to be a knower. Gnostic is the word for knower, someone who knows things. Gnosis is the word for knowledge. So these are people that are like, oh, so what group are you going to? Oh, I'm a knower. I know things. I have knowledge. Would you like some knowledge? Right? You could just see the appeal of it, right? What a great name. Too bad it's, it's smeared by this one group here, or it's actually a, a bunch of groups. So the Gnostics uh, had a whole pre-story before Genesis. So in Genesis 1, it opens in the beginning, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens of the earth. In the beginning, the Gnostics say, the beginning of what? The beginning of creation. Okay, well, that's talking about this physical universe. What's before the universe? And now they're going to start telling you a story about the spiritual creation of all the aeons and spirit realities in the pleroma which is another realm beyond our entire universe and how our universe was really created by a fallen God who wasn't even like a good guy. And he kind of shoddily constructed our universe. And that's why there's so many problems in the world. Because we had a bad God created. So that's the Gnostics. I'm going to explain this to you in a future session, but when I get to explain it to you, you're going to be like, this is so weird. How could anyone believe this? It was super believable in its own time. And that's exactly the problem. Now, Valentinus came along and he worked with the Gnostic belief system and brought Jesus into a more central role, kind of Christianized it. And so the Valentinians would go to regular churches on Sunday, but then during the midweek, they'd be like, do you want to know the deeper truths of the faith? And they would introduce them to all these Gnostic ideas that were kind of edited and streamlined and made a little more palatable. So the second century, I, I think of the second century as like the Wild West. There's no big sheriff in town to say, oh, you're the true form of Christianity. Oh, no, you are. Everyone's competing and trying to, to gain adherence and trying to discuss and argue with each other and figure things out. There are lots of takes on Christianity, and there's no powerful institutional church to call the shots. So I want to close by looking at Christologies of the second century. And a Christology is your belief about Christ. What is your belief about Christ? So the first one I want to mention is that of the Jewish Christians, the Ebionites and the Nazarenes, and that is the dynamic Monarchians. Dynamic Monarchians. Now, this word sounds weird, but trust me, it's not hard this term, because you have mon there, right? Like mono means only or one, and archi is the word, it means ruler, one ruler. 
That's what it means. To be in a monarchian is to be somebody that believes there's one ruler, one supreme, overall. And then to be dynamic means that you believe that that one ruler gives power to Jesus. So Jesus is empowered by the one ruler to do the things that he does. He's not just like a regular guy who is just like really good at healing people or something. You know, like he's, he's empowered by the one ruler. So as examples of dynamic monarchians, so these are people that believe Jesus did not pre-exist, but that he was God's chosen one. Some of them are going to believe, the majority, of, I believe, are going to believe in the virgin birth, but there are some who don't believe in the virgin birth. and Those are called adoptionists, just to be clear. So we have the Ebionites, those are Jewish Christians, Nazarenes, the Didache, we're going to look at next session, First Clement next session, Hermas next session, and then later on we'll look at Theodotus of Byzantium. But these are all examples of dynamic monarchians from the second century, although Didache maybe you could argue is first century. Then you have the Docetists. The Docetists, as I mentioned before, believe Jesus appeared to be human. Key word, seem or appear. He wasn't actually human. He was not a human being. Jesus is a spirit being who came down from above and appeared as if he was a human, but he wasn't. If you went to touch him, you would find out that he wasn't a real human being. And so with Marcion, I'm not entirely sure. that A lot of people say he was, but there's some doubt about it. But we know that for sure the Gnostics and Valentinus and his followers, the Valentinians, they did believe this about Jesus, that he was a spirit being come down who appeared to be in flesh, but he wasn't actually. And then we have logos subordinationists, uh, kind of an unwieldy term, but logos is the word for word in Greek. And so this all goes back to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, where it says, in the beginning was the word, and it talks about how the word created everything. And so the idea here for a logos subordinationist is that The Word is not on the same level as God, but subordinate to God, and then became a human being. Okay, so the Logos is itself not just a a being, but like it has a personhood to it. So it has its own thoughts and so forth. So you have the Father, and then you have the Logos, and then the Logos becomes a human being in Jesus Christ. And so we find that in Pseudo-Barnabas, 2 Clement, Justin and Irenaeus, and a couple other places too in the second century. Then we have modalistic monarchians. Once again, you see the monarchian word there. Just one ruler, only one God. But the modal part of it that modifies it means that this one God manifests himself in different modes throughout time. So you have him manifesting himself as father and at other times manifesting himself as son, And so the idea is that the Son just is the Father. They are the same being. They are of the same substance. This belief system today is called oneness, or Jesus only. And that's represented by Praxius in the 2nd century, and then in the 3rd century by a guy named Sibelius. So these are four competing views of who Jesus is that are all there in the 2nd century. Isn't that incredible? And there's probably more. You know, I'm sort of simplifying the categories a little bit here, but these are the various ideas about who Jesus is in the second century. So there's another whole group 
that I really want to talk to you about called the Apostolic Fathers. We're going to look at them in, in our next session. Let's review first, and then I'll mention a book. All right, so we looked at Jewish Christianity. We looked at asceticism. Could not be more different than each other. Jewish people are not ascetics, then or now. That's just not their jam. Denying pleasure is not part of the package. That's a Greco-Roman ideal coming from Stoicism and other, and other influences. Um, then we looked at the Marcionites, who were ascetics. Marcion famously would not even let somebody join his church if they were married. And he advocated vegetarianism. Right? So these ascetic ideals are coming into some of his, his groups, at least. Then we just briefly mentioned the Gnostics and the Valentinians. And then we looked at four Christologies in the second century. Each of these topics deserves more time. I'm just a tour guide, I'm just showing you stuff. If you want to look into it more, you can, you can do more research in this. So I did want to mention this book here, though. It's, it's a pretty helpful book. It's called A Companion to Second Century Christian Heretics. This is a, a book that's pretty good, and it goes through a lot of the different non-mainstream groups of Christianity, and it does it in a non-judgmental way, which I think is, is helpful. So that's going to be it for our second century overview. We're going to get into the Apostolic Fathers next in our journey through early church history. Well, that brings this session to a close. What would you think? Come on over to restitutio.org and find episode 483, Christianity in the Second Century, and leave your feedback there. On our last episode, somebody named Mark wrote in saying, Hi, Sean, what a truly epic series you are creating. I cannot wait for all the episodes yet to come. And I just really wanted to thank you for the enormous effort you put in. It shows. Well, thanks, Mark. Let me just pause your comment here. These episodes do take a ridiculous <laughs> amount of preparation. Uh, it just doesn't seem like it should take that much research and prep to put together a 40-minute or an hour-long episode, but it, it really does. So I appreciate that you, uh, that you notice and that you appreciate it. The goal really here is to give top shelf content, to give you the kind of quality church history that you would get in a university that is informed by not only the standard resources in the field, but up to date based on more recent scholarly research as well. So you'll have to be the judge on whether or not I achieve that. But really the goal here is to equip you, dear listener, to have an overview of what in the world happened in the first 500 years. So then you can do further research, you can understand why later church developments ended up being the way they are, and that you could be inspired and warned as well. Mark continues, now on a slightly related note, it is to do with early church history. Have you ever heard about the custom of being immersed three times during the act of baptism or... In other words, triple dipping, which I find to be a hilarious term, by the way. Yes, at first it may seem odd, but really consider it for a moment. We are commanded to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Matthew 28, 19. So the baptismal formula contains three elements, and it occurred to me that in the custom of Judaism, one is also submerged three times, including for conversion. And then Mark goes on to cite the Didache, a quote from Tertullian, and another quote from Hippolytus before asking the question, 
What do you think? Sounds very interesting to me, and perhaps something we should consider adopting if the evidence is indeed compelling. Maybe also something to cover in your series. Who knows? Perhaps I'm alone in being excited about discovering this practice, but I thought I'd share it because maybe there are others who would find it interesting too. All the best, Mark. Well, Mark, as it turns out, I am going to get into the subject of baptism, along with communion and what church services were like, as well as church discipline and conversion in general, in episode nine. So you're just going to have to stay tuned. In that episode, I cover early church orders. Uh, whether you realize it or not, two of the sources you cited are actually church orders. The Didache is the earliest church order. And then we have the Apostolic Tradition by Hippolytus, and that's the, the second major church order. But then there's the Didascalea, the Apostolic Church Order, and the 4th century Apostolic Constitutions. Uh, so I am going to get into it. I think it, is, uh, I think it is certainly a practice that becomes standard over time. I think we have to be careful, though, to make the move and say, therefore, it's obligatory on Christians today, since it's never clearly commanded in Scripture. I guess you could infer it from Matthew 28, 19, as you pointed out, because it says baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't say baptizing them in the name of the Father, baptizing them in the name of the Son, baptizing them in the name of the Holy Spirit. Just as well could be a triple formula as it is three separate dippings, or a triple dip, as uh, as you mentioned, uh, which I agree is a historical term for it. Reminds me of like a soft serve ice cream cone or something. But uh, anyhow, uh, I think when it comes to this practice, each church has to figure out what they're going to do. And, and if they want to do three dips, hey, why not do four dips? Uh, the point is the minimum of one as far as qualifying to be actual baptism. And then any more than that would certainly just be a bonus, I suppose. So, but good, good thoughts. Uh, I think when it comes to the question of they did this, therefore we should do it, we should ask ourselves the question, do we have a good reason not to? And is it a biblical reason? Is it a logical reason? Because otherwise, I think, I think, Mark, you're right, we should default to their behavior. But here's a concern I have, and that is, we have this formula from Jesus, which is textually certain, by the way, in Matthew 20 and 19. I know sometimes people question that, quoting Eusebius and, and whatnot, but this is a textually certain manuscript from Matthew 20 and 19, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So this is where it begins, and then we get to this passage in the Didache, 50 years later, give or take, where which talks about pouring. If you don't have enough regular water for uh, baptism, then you can pour three times. And then it says, once in the name of the Father, once in the name of the Son, once in the name of the Spirit. Then a little later, with the apostolic tradition, we have dunking the person three times. And then a little later after that, especially once you get into the fourth century, this practice, I think, gives birth to this tendency towards threes. And, which eventually becomes the Trinity. And I think we have to take that into consideration when we're figuring out what practices to keep and what practices not to keep. If we, if we have good historical reasons, and assuming you're not a Trinitarian, Mark, I, I don't know if you are or not, but assuming you're not a Trinitarian, would you really want to install a practice in the Church which is not commanded by Scripture, which we know historically did in some way lead to a Trinity, or potentially did? 
Uh, I think you have to ask yourself that question. But thanks so much for writing in. As far as other comments that came in on the YouTube video, somebody named C. Amold wrote, I appreciate your hard work. I love your passion to know the history so people like me that can't have the opportunities to do what you have done to do to tell us these things get pieces of it. I have a huge reading list, adding more throughout your videos to the pile on my shelf. Church history is amazing and another way to follow the Spirit of God, or not the Spirit of God, that led us to issues we have today, and to be able to navigate where the truth really lays. Thanks so much. I'm very excited for this series. Already binged, watched the others. So to know that you got more pumps me up. If I live there, my family will be sitting right there with you. Well, thanks for writing in. Another comment says, this was wonderful. I can't wait to hear about the Nazarenes. Uh, Someone else wrote in, T.B. Donnelly, I watched both classes back-to-back, and you filled in my gaps. I had always wondered what happened to the Jews after Jesus died, and now, and how there was a split. Thanks, Sean. Uh, And that's really the the focus of our last episode, is understanding Jewish-Christian relations and why there was a split and how that split occurred, even though we can't get totally clear on the precise date of these different events of this parting of the ways. We do know that it happened towards the end of the first century or the beginning of the second century. And hopefully as we continue on in this class, you will find many more interesting and useful subjects that will help you to get a better grasp on on, on our history. This is, after all, our history, is it not? Uh, so it's good to know your own history. Jim Winchester wrote in, wow, had no idea Mount Masada had such enormous height. Uh, Jim's referring to the video clip I played, which is only in the the YouTube version of this class on episode two, where I talked about the Jewish wars. And uh, when I had done my trip to Israel, I had visited Masada, and I even got to run up the side of it along what they call the Snake Path. And let me tell you, it was a vigorous climb. It took me a little over 20 minutes. I got to the top, and I felt like I was going to pass out and keel over. I cannot imagine being Roman soldiers marching up that thing and uh, building a ramp up it. Uh, It just must have been grueling work day in and day out, and then they finally get to the top, and everyone's dead. It's just, like, unbelievable. But uh, that's, that's the history. And to this day, this is something I heard, Jim, if you're listening to this. To this day, what I heard is that Israeli defense forces are commissioned at Masada. I, I don't know, that's maybe just like an urban myth or something, but it's pretty fascinating to hear that it like still has this relevance in the culture. Well, that's it for today. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. If you'd like to support this ministry, you could do that at restitudio.org. I'll catch you next time, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear. <laughs>